Ezekiel chapter 40, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city. On that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. Okay, we're turning to chapter 43, um, starting from verse 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, son of man, This is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, They defiled my holy name by their detestable practices, so I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Turning now to chapter 47 from verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, 
Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Aglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left with salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. The fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Uh, Finally, we're in chapter 48, starting from verse 30. These will be the exits of the city. Beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long, the gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gates of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all round will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Well, thanks so much, Cam. Good to see you. And my name's Chris, if you don't know me. So today we come to the last section of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48. And this is the climax of the book. Uh, It it encompasses one vision, which is why we're covering all these chapters together. However, my guess is that if you have been diligent and read ahead, right, uh, you'll have slogged through, right? And my guess is that when you ask the question, how does this apply, you probably haven't got the foggiest, and perhaps you've got a pretty low expectation for the next little while. Okay, here is a plea from your pastor to open yourselves up to this vision from God. Uh, It is more than interesting. We need, we need this vision. Because even though we're neither Jews, we're not exiles in Babylon like Ezekiel, even though we've come long after Christ came, this vision still remains relevant because it still speaks of things yet to be fulfilled, glorious things which will involve all of us. This vision informs our hope and it speaks of wonderful things that God is yet to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes so that we would be impacted by this vision and it would become part of us. Amen.
Okay, so uh, how to begin? A better question than asking how do chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel apply to us, it's a good question, but a better question is to ask how can we let these chapters do their work on us? That is, how can we so listen to the words of this vision that it becomes part of us, it, we, we take it on board, it becomes what we hope for so that it's the substance of our longings and our ambition? That, that's a better question. Now, to get us there, we need to take a few steps. First of all, we need an overview of the vision, then we're going to think about how to interpret it, and then we're going to ask God from this vision, what, what are your plans? And then God, where have those plans gone in the past in terms of what's already been fulfilled? And then finally, where is this all going in terms of the future, okay? So firstly, we need an overview to see Ezekiel's vision. Now, if you've got a Bible, open it. Uh, if you've got a, you know, your Bible on a device, open that. What we're going to do is scan right across. I'd like you to follow. In chapter 40, the vision starts with a time reference. It's 572 BC. It's been 25 years since Ezekiel was first exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, which means that it's been about 20 years since he first received his first vision from God in Ezekiel chapter one. And then for six years after that, from chapters one to 33, Ezekiel prophesied and his message essentially was, Jerusalem is going to fall. But by the time of this vision in chapter 40, Jerusalem as a city has already fallen, it's already been laid waste for 14 years. And we read about that in chapter 34. And then after that, that turning point, Ezekiel's message had been largely positive of what God would do to restore his people. He was going to gather them back. He was going to wash them clean of their idolatry, take away their heart of stone, give them new hearts of flesh marked by a new spirit within. It would be like he'd resurrect them as a people. And then over them, he would shepherd them by placing over, him, over them one king, in the line of David, and this even though the monarchy was no more. That's the context for chapter 40. And now we're told in chapter 40, verse two, that Ezekiel, for a second time, is transported by God. How, in, in the body, out of the body, we don't know. He's transported from his refugee camp by the Kiba River in Babylon to Jerusalem, 700 miles away, and he is shown in his vision, well, a number of things. First of all, the restoration of the entire temple area. Chapter one, 41 describes the new temple uh, in the pattern of the tabernacle or the, or the, the temple of Solomon. Uh, there's the most hol holy place. It's described like a cube, as, as wide as it is long, as it is high. Chapter 42, if you're flicking now through your Bible, describes the room for the priests where they would robe and disrobe because the robes that they would wear in service of God had to be different from those that they would wear in the marketplace. What they did as God's priests in the temple had to be holy and distinguished from what was common or profane. And then in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. Now we have to remember back in chapters 10 and 11 in his earlier vision, Ezekiel had seen the glory of the Lord leave the temple cross the Kidron Valley and stop on the Mount of Olives and, and watch 
meaning that if Jerusalem fell, it would fall not because of the might of Nebuchadnezzar's army, but because God had left. He had forsaken his dwelling place, which to the exiles was unthinkable. Well, we know that worst nightmare came true, but now 14 years after Jerusalem has fallen, now Ezekiel sees God's glory returning again to the temple. And then in the rest of chapter 43, the altar at the temple is restored so that sacrifices can again resume and be offered up to God. In chapter 44, the priesthood is restored. Only those priests who are descendants of Aaron and then Zadok, who are not guilty of heinous sin, they, only they are allowed to serve at the altar. The others have to be guards and serve at the doors. And then in chapters 45 and 46, Israel is restored. So you've got the temple, the rooms for the priest, the altar, the priesthood. Now the nation of Israel is restored with more and more steps taken to renew them as the people of God. You've got princes in chapter 45, verse nine, who must give up their violence and oppression and use accurate scales. There to be no more shady deals, no extortion, no violence. There has to be justice. Now, who are these princes? We're not told. It's a question, though, isn't it? Because there are no more kings in Israel. Whoever they are in this vision, the princes must work in tandem with the priests to make sure sacrifices happen. The princes are to provide the priests with the animals for sacrifice so that the priests can offer them. The government and the temple work together to maintain worship. And the Passover and the Sabbath festivals they reinstate, they begin again. Then in chapter 47, we have this beautiful image which we just had read of this life-giving river flowing from the throne of God in the new temple. It begins as a trickle and then larger and larger until it's uncrossable. It flows down into the Red Sea. It turns the Dead Sea, whose waters are salty, into fresh water. And with fresh water comes this abundance of marine life and then on the banks, of course, fruit trees, which give fruit for food and leaves for healing. Then from chapters 47, verse 13, to the end of chapter 48, God gives a description of the boundaries of the land for all the tribes of Israel and a description of the city whose name, and this is where the vision ends, is Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. That is the climax of the vision. Well, what do we make of it? Well, some bits are wonderful. Some bits, frankly, make us yawn. <laughs> but that's probably because we're missing something. What do we do with this? Historically, for Jewish and Christians who've thought on this passage, it's been interpreted in four different ways. First of all, there's the literal prophetic short-term interpretation. Some see what's given here as the literal blueprint of the temple for when Israel returns to the land after the exile, which they did within six or seven years. Now, if that is so, we have to say, well, this temple was never ever built. Um, a temple was built, but not according to these designs. And add to that, chapters 40 to 48 is one vision and the river, for example, which flows from God's throne in the temple to bring life and healing to the land, that, that's never occurred. 
And add to that the boundaries of the land as described are difficult to squeeze in the geography of Palestine as we know it. There's a level of unreality there, which means that interpretation is not actually held by many people today. The second way of interpreting this vision is to see this vision as symbolically describing the church. Now, there is some truth in this. The New Testament is described, uh, describes uh, the church as God's temple. But again, it seems forced. A third line of interpretation is the dispensational interpretation. This is like the first interpretation in that it's looking for literal historic fulfillment, but it's different to the first one because this one looks to the future, not to the past for its fulfillment. Specifically to the millennium, when it is thought that if you adopt a very literal concrete reading of the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20, that Christ will come to reign on the earth from Jerusalem on a throne, in a new temple, complete with Old Testament sacrifices, recommencing again. The Schofield Reference Bible describes this period as Israel in the land of the kingdom age. Okay, now the main difficulty with that line of interpretation is the question of what are sacrifices doing being restarted? particularly in the light of what's taught to us in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapters seven, eight, and nine, which says that Christ has been sacrificed on the cross once for all, payment for all sins for all time, meaning that there is no more need for any more payment, any more sacrifices to make atonement, which the blood of bulls and goats never really achieved anyway. And given that the cross has ended those sacrifices, therefore why recommence them again. Now the most godly of dispensationalist writers would say, well just as the Old Testament sacrifice looked forward to the finished work of Christ on the cross, so these sacrifices would look back to his completed work. Now, that skirts around Hebrews chapter seven which says that actually now with Jesus coming we have a new priesthood of an entirely different order to the one in the Old Covenant. The old order was a Levitical priesthood, priests coming from the tribe of Levi, but now Jesus is the high priest. He's a high priest of a different order. He came from the tribe of Judah. He is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means his is an eternal priesthood and Jesus is both our king and our priest and because that is so, because his priesthood is of a different order, the Le Levitical priesthood has been permanently put aside. So how could it recommence again? We add to that the fact that Jesus gave us, gave us the church, one method of looking back and remembering his death on the cross, which was the Lord's Supper, communion. He, he said nothing about a, a temple with new sacrifices recommencing. So that issue, that interpretation, though popular, has its issues, I think pretty substantial ones, which brings us to the fourth interpretation, which is the prophetic apocalyptic interpretation for... Uh, loss of a better title. Prophetic because it speaks of the future, apocalyptic because it uses numbers symbolically and images 
um, like in apocalyptic literature, like in the book of Revelation, to describe what is to come. Numbers and symbols which make sense to us now and which partly are anchored in our own reality now but still speak ahead of things to come. A good way to understand this is to think of the mountain range. You can stand a long way off from a mountain range and see the whole range in a distance and talk about it as a whole, the Mount Lofty Ranges, the Flinders Ranges, the Great Dividing Range. But as you get closer, you can see that the first ridge, behind that first ridge is another ridge and so on, and each ridge higher than the one before. And if you were to get really close, all you'd actually see was the first ridge. You climb that, you think you're on the top of the mountain range, but then you see another one that's even higher, and then you get to the top of that one, and then you see, actually, that's not the top. There's another one further on. So too with these prophecies. If we go on with this, thirdly, God, what are your plans? Now, from the vision of Ezekiel, I haven't got time to go through the lot, but I just want to outline a few glorious, eye-popping, mind-blowing, heart-emblazoning, soul-igniting pieces of God's vision, right? Okay, first of all, God is planning a new creation for his regathered people. Ezekiel describes this river flowing from the throne, first a trickle, then a stream, then this wide river giving life to the Dead Sea. The image takes us back to the Garden of Eden where from Eden four rivers flowed which gave life to the world and Eden which had its fruit trees including the, the, the tree of life. So Ezekiel's image takes us back to creation but it also takes us forward to new creation, to the last chapter of the Bible, to Revelation 22 to the describing of the new creation with the river of life and a tree of life. So we look forward to a new creation for the Lord's regathered people. That is so exciting, I think. Second, God is planning a purified worship. Now that is the point of the chapters laboring the design and dimensions of the temple. We read those chapters and we wonder, what is the point of giving us all this detail? Well, God tells us the point. We are meant to contrast that design with what was happening earlier. The other time that God transported Ezekiel spiritually back to Jerusalem in chapter eight. The difference between this journey back there and his previous one is that in the previous one, Ezekiel saw the temple before it was destroyed. He saw it as God saw it. He was taken around like a tourist to see the depraved worship that was going on. So in the temple courtyard, people were worshiping an idol that provoked God to jealousy in God's temple. Now, if that doesn't make us recoil in horror, think about this. Years ago, I I, I remember having, as, as a pastor, to confront the non-Christian husband of one of the ladies at our church because not only was her husband having an affair and could see nothing wrong with that and thought his wife should have nothing wrong with that, but he was also making plans for his mistress to move in to the house with his wife and their three children in primary school and couldn't understand why his wife would be upset about this. Well, God has the same sense of outrage 
as that wife. He is not into mutual toleration of rival lovers. Either the idols needed to go or he would go. Anything else he could not tolerate. Son of man, do you see this? I'll show you even more. Ezekiel, we remember, was shown what was happening in the rooms inside the wall of the temple in the dark. Israel's elders were sacrificing to creepy, crawly idols, which weren't just pagan borrowed from other nations, but they were unclean in the eyes of God, snakes and beetles and such like. Do you see this? Ezekiel is asked, I'll show you even more. And then Ezekiel is shown women in the temple courts mourning over the Sumerian god Tammuz, who was a fertility god. In the autumn, as plants would die, you'd, you'd go into mourning, so that in spring, when the new growth appeared, uh, you could rejoice. Uh, often, worship like this was coupled with acts of adultery and prostitution at that worship site, sowing seed so that seed would sow. Now this was happening in God's temple when it was God who gives life and food and season. Son of man, do you see this? I'll show you even more. Right outside the holy place, people were facing east with their backs to God, bowing down to the rising sun, lifting their backsides up to God. Scene after scene of corrupt worship where the real God, Israel's living God, was replaced by idols which are not God at all. This, is, this was happening in the temple. But now in chapter 40, 14 years after the temple has been destroyed, God takes Ezekiel a second time to the temple and he shows him the design and the plan of the new temple. Now why does he do it? Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 10, we read it. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. The purpose of giving us the design of the temple was to cleanse people from their idolatry and to bring in pure worship. In the holy place, the altar is to be used for sacrifice instead of worshiping an idol that provokes God to jealousy. And instead of Israel's elders offering incense in the dark to pagan gods or bowing down to the sun in the courtyard, they, they the princes, are to provide the sacrifices, you see. And the point of telling us of the designs is to make us see what worship was and God's design of what worship will be. And then with the help of God's spirit, for God's people to cleanse ourselves of any false worship or idols. Now, it's not likely that any of us are bowing down to tall idol statues to the Asherah poles or whatever. But it's likely that we have other heart devotions which provoke God to jealousy. The Lord is a jealous God. He will not broker rivals. And it's likely we're not offering sacrifices in the dark to snakes. But do we watch inappropriate things in the dark? Things that God declares unclean? 
which he sees. And yeah, we're not engaging in fertility cults, but worshiping the Sumerian god Tammuz or Baal. Yet we live in a culture where we can come very close to worshiping sex itself. Everything is sexualized, perverted. And we don't literally bow down to the sun, but we're a nation of sun lovers. And yes, whilst God gives us the sun and creation to enjoy, if we leave him out in that enjoyment and we forget to thank him, we soon find ourselves worshipping the creation rather than the creator. Do you see this? It was for these reasons that God left Jerusalem, for these reasons that the temple was destroyed but now God has shown Ezekiel his plans for a new temple where there is no idolatry, no infrastructure for idol worships, but only infrastructure that enables true worship of God. And the point of the symbolic dimensions, you know, like the holy place described as a cube, as long and deep as it is high, is to show that the worship that God will establish will be perfect. It will be without flaw. This is where God is bringing us. God has plans for a new creation, purified worship, and thirdly, that the Lord himself will be our sanctuary, our temple. God impresses this on us right throughout Ezekiel. In chapter one, Ezekiel is there in Babylon by the Kibar River and sees a mobile throne chariot. <laughs> um, God's throne on wheels, upheld by four living creatures, on which was the glory of God. What's remarkable about that is that it's mobile. God's throne wasn't there in Jerusalem. It, it came to them in Babylon. Point being, for the people in Jerusalem, the temple building itself is not what counts. It's God's presence that counts. And the point for the exiles, though they are miles from the temple, the Lord himself will be their sanctuary, you see. That was taught back in chapter one. And that's what God himself says in chapter 11. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I sent them among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them. That's temple language in the countries where they have gone. In other words, what makes a temple of the Lord a temple of the Lord is not the bricks and mortar. It is that God is there. Which is why when God does describe the temple plans, he includes the fact that his throne is there. So that by the end of the vision, the climax of the renewed creation, the new land, the new city, is not the temple building, but Yahweh Shema, the Lord, is there. Um, we think, don't we, and we, we think, what is it about heaven that will be so wonderful? Um, is it just that we will see one another again? A family reunion of people long gone. Well, that'll be great, but that's not the best. It, it, and, and neither is it that we will finally get to ask the Apostle Paul, what really did you mean in Romans chapter 11, Paul? Okay. The wonder of the Lord's fulfilled plans are that we will be there with him. With him. 
We will see him. He will fill our hearts and our minds and our eyes till they are bursting. And we won't be able to do anything but worship. These are God's plans laid down in the vision, which is now 2,500 year old. So, so now let's ask point four. God, where have your plans gone in terms of what's already fulfilled? Now, seven years after this vision, the Israelites returned and the temple, yes, was rebuilt, but the glory of the Lord did not come to that temple, not historically like it came to the tabernacle in the time of Moses, nor like it filled Solomon's temple when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter eight and the priests were so blinded by God's glory they had to stop their work. We read Ezra or Nehemiah and, and the new temple that was built was smaller than the previous one. It, it, the old people who could remember what the previous one was like, they were in tears while the youngsters were rejoicing because the glory of the new temple was nothing on the glory of the old one and God's glory didn't actually come and fill it. And neither was there a new king when the exiles went back or, or new princes in the line of David even though Jerusalem lived through the controls of the per Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, until we get to the time of the New Testament, which opens for us with the breathtaking announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the one, John begins his gospel by saying, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And, and John did see it, didn't he, when he was up on the mountain with Peter and James and John and Jesus changed and his face changed in appearance and his clothes became as dazzling as lightning. He is the one who would later point to the temple and say, see this temple, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. And yet, of course, he wasn't talking about the building, was he? He was talking about the place where atonement happens, the place where God and people meet and are reconciled, the place of revelation where you come and learn from, he was talking about himself, his body. So that when Jesus did die and make atonement and rise again, the disciples did what they could only do and worshipped. Point five. If that's where God's plans from Ezekiel have gone, now where are they going? If we go now to the last two chapters of the Bible, we see where God's plans are going in language that we now recognise comes straight out of the vision of Ezekiel. Except that as in the mountain range illustration, what is described in the book of Revelation surpasses that the heights of even Ezekiel's vision. In Revelation chapter 21, John says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, chapter 21, verse one, we'll get to this reading in a sec. At verse two, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So God is planning for us to live with him in a city, in the New Jerusalem, 
which is not, by the way, a renovation or rebuild of the current earthly city of Jerusalem because he says there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We won't be, sorry, heaven won't be up there in heaven because the new Jerusalem will come down to us, down to earth from heaven. It is a heavenly Jerusalem which comes down. We are told this in Revelation 21. And then in verse 11, thanks Jenna, God, uh, John, like Ezekiel before him, gets carried away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, just like Ezekiel was. And then, just like Ezekiel, he is shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And John says, it shone with the glory of God. And now the description surpasses even that in Ezekiel's vision. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, a, a clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12, 12 gates. Ezekiel's city had 12 gates. And with 12 angels at the gates, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, as in Ezekiel's vision. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Again, just like Ezekiel saw. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is different. But as in Ezekiel, we are given its dimensions. Verse 15, the angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. Perfect, in other words. But verse 18, instead of boring us, the description is dazzling. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as, as wide and high as it is long. It's not just the most holy place that's a cube. It, the, whole temp, the whole city is. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick, but the categories, the wall was made of jasper and, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold and pure as transparent glass. And then the crucial difference, of course, is in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, the coming of Jesus changes things. It shifts the vision because he fulfills everything the temple needed to fulfill and more. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the lamb is its lamp. And then in language straight out of Ezekiel, we read in chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb 
down the middle of the great street of the city. God and the lamb on the throne giving life. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healings of the nations. The nations will be there. No Jew would have as the um, gate to the city wall a pearl. Pearls were mollusks. These were unclean things. But the fact that a pearl, there are 12 pearls for the 12 gates, means that the nations, you see, it's their city too. And this is what Ezekiel's vision is talking about a renewed creation for his regathered people. Verse three, no longer will there be any curse because the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In the book of Ezekiel, um, those who were spared the judgment of Jerusalem in the earlier vision had God's name on their foreheads. Well, they are here, there. In Ezekiel Um, they were spared from judgment. Verse five, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Who will reign? It's the servants. The princes, you see. Those who reign. That's where the princes are from Ezekiel's vision. It is those who've been made pure by God, made spotless by the Lamb, gathered together to worship in the fellowship of the Spirit. They will see his face. Now, in the book of Revelation, angels could not look at God. They covered their face with their wings. But those who are made pure, his image bearers, they are able to gaze in delight at the God of all glory and see him and give him pure and unadulterated praise. That is where God's plans are going. And brothers and sisters, That is the vision which needs to become part of us. We need it, don't we? Father in heaven, grip us with this vision. And insofar as it is possible for forgiven sinners to see you more clearly then please enable this to happen. That we would hold light to the things of this world that we would hold stronger to that which is to come. And please may this fill our hearts with joy. Amen.